It's Thursday, September 14th, 2023 from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. And tomorrow, September 15th, is Hispanic Heritage Month. You might be saying to yourself, wait a minute, this is September 14th. If September 15th is Hispanic Heritage Month, wouldn't September 14th be? Most months are things like July and, to take another common example, August. So you might think that today would be Hispanic Heritage Month, but you would be wrong. Inaccurate. You lose. Good day, sir. Actually, it's buenos dias, senor, but... The reason is actually kind of interesting. Hispanic Heritage Month started under the Lyndon B. Johnson administration, and it was Hispanic Heritage Week. It started September 15th, which made sense because that was when Mexico commemorates its Independence Day on the 16th, and Costa Rica, El Salvador, Guatemala, Honduras, Nicaragua celebrate their independence on September 15th. So let's give them a week that roughly correlates with many of the Latin American countries' independence. Then, under Ronald Reagan, it was extended to a month. So what do you do? Back it up a month? No, everyone was loving September 15th as the kickoff. So you just run it from September 15th to October 15th. It's a month, not a full 31 days, but, you know, due to the vagaries of September having only 30. However, what was interesting to me, besides this fascinating, fascinating backstory was how I found out that it was Hispanic Heritage Month. Was it my local Hispanic or Latino Heritage Committee coming to me, telling me? No. Was it living in this country for 51 years? No. Was it studying the Lyndon Baines Johnson administration? No, 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 no. And I am speaking Spanish when I say no, by the way. It was because Google Calendar told me that tomorrow is the start of Hispanic Heritage Month. And so... I credit Google. I thank Google. They did for me what living in this country as a fairly cognizant 51-year-old could not. That's kind of amazing. And forget the government for search. I mean, Google's much better at search. The government had 13 days to search for Danilo Calvacante. Come on, Google would have returned that results in, you know, 0.1 seconds. It was a spread of, I'm going to say, useful, actionable information. Right now, Google is on trial, an antitrust trial. But it is the government, the U.S. government, that is putting them on trial. But the government failed in telling me about Hispanic Heritage Month and also failed in all my other appointments that Google Calendar is really good at telling me about. And forget the government for search. What I'm saying is, it is an antitrust trial. But to a large extent, I trust Google. I don't trust them blindly. YouTube, I got some problems with, but then YouTube is owned by Google. But in general, do you sense that Google is more trusted than many other companies that you think antitrust should apply to, like many of its tech brethren? And it's not just an impression that I'm getting. I do think that in general, the public is so much less invested in this trial than you think it might be. I mean, you ask most cognizant Americans, what's the biggest institutional challenges to our country? They might name a certain political party. They might say something like nuclear weapons or global warming or Russia, but instant institutional, something with an actual headquarters. Okay, the RNC has a headquarters, but I don't think that's the right answer. They would say, well, the tech companies, we're living in a tech world. Okay, we're going to do something about the tech companies. Whether you think they should, or maybe you really think they shouldn't, you might think people are really going to pay attention to the biggest trial that could break up a tech company. You would be wrong. They're paying attention to Hispanic Heritage Month. No, I mean, they are paying more attention to the 
Amber Heard Johnny Depp trial. All right, that's fine. That's celebrity. I think they paid more attention to the Theranos trial, and it was only celebrity because she broke the law, so her celebrity was created pretty much by her going on trial or the situation that made Elizabeth Holmes uh, guilty, yes, ultimately guilty of you knowing her. My point is, when you compare this trial of Google and how important it should be, it seems so much less important, I think, not because of as is the case with other undercover media stories, that we don't have the right attention span, that we're not properly being focused, that people overall and the experts that do have a lot of sway and can focus our attention kind of know that this trial is not going to put Google on its heels, and maybe shouldn't put Google on its heels. The government, under Lena Khan, who runs the department that's bringing the antitrust charges, has a terrible track record. She's an aggressive antitrust uh, pursuer and prosecutor, but she has brought these cases somewhat haphazardly and quite unsuccessfully. And also, the experts, maybe if they've been in this job long enough, look back to the Microsoft trial and say, well... We covered that extensively, and they did. I was in the news uh, business at the time, covering the news business, if you will. That trial got a lot of attention. It was said to be a blockbuster. I remember the lawyers. I remember the judge. I remember the arguments. And do I remember the upshot? Do I remember how Microsoft was brought to heel? No, it was mostly over browsers, and the browser wars kind of played themselves out. So my argument is that this Google trial... Google, the company that told me about Hispanic Heritage Month and also made clear that it wasn't a month as we know it, but a 30-day span, that Google and the trial may not be just a bunch of nada, but it's a bit sin importancia. On the show today, we're joined once again by Vincent Schiraldi. Yesterday, we talked about his time running, among other institutions in New York, Rikers Island, where he was commissioner of the Department of Correction. He now holds a job in Maryland as Secretary of Department of Juvenile Services. His new book is titled Mass Supervision, Probation, Parole, and the Illusion of Safety and Freedom, and we will concentrate on that today. Yesterday was a lot about New York. Call me a myopic New Yorker. I think Rikers Island is important to all, but the issue of parole and probation certainly transcends the boundaries of but one metropolis. Vincent Schiraldi up next. Hi, this is Rachel Yucatel, and I'm here to invite you to listen to my podcast, Misunderstood with Rachel Yucatel. This podcast delves into the lives of those who have been reduced to a single headline. Each episode will take a closer look at the stories of those who are on a mission to change their narrative. Join me as we uncover the truth behind the misconceptions, shed light on the stories of those who have perhaps been wrongfully portrayed, explore the complexities of the human experience, and celebrate the power of second chances. Who doesn't love a good comeback story? We've all seen the headlines in the news of how someone lost their life in an act of cold-blooded murder. And while it's sad and grabs your attention, most people go on with their day without giving it another thought. But have you ever stopped to think about the life of the person at the center of the news story? They were more than just a headline or a statistic. They were someone's loved one or friend. I'm Mike Morford, and my podcast, The Murder of My Family, dives into some of those stories to help listeners get to know the person who was lost and how their death affected those closest to them. Listen to The Murder of My Family everywhere you listen to podcasts. There are well over 100 episodes to binge on now. 
Vincent Giraldi is the secretary of the Maryland Department of Juvenile Services. He also ran the Department of Corrections in New York City. And we talked a lot about his time there yesterday. Today, we pivot to his book and the broader issues brought up in mass supervision, probation, parole, and the illusion of safety and freedom. The book has a lot of history. It talks about figures like Zebulon Brockway. And how could I not cite Zebulon Brockway, an early reformer in Elmira, New York? But I began by asking Mr. Shoraldi, is the problem with probation and parole that it doesn't deliver on the promise of keeping the supervised out of trouble? Or is the problem that it defines trouble so narrowly it's unfair to those inside the system? It is both of those problems plus, I think, some level of unfixability in that it's not cared about enough by people, not even advocates, not even researchers, to be fixed. So it has the problem I talked about before, which is that unless your kid's in it, or your brother, or your husband, or you, you don't really care about it. But also, advocates don't really care about it. Funders don't care about it. Media doesn't care about it. Mike, what is your favorite probation movie? <laughs> well, right. If I ask you what your favorite prison movie is, you're going to say Shawshank. Uh-huh. You're going to say Cool Hand Luke. But what's your favorite probation movie? It's, it doesn't capture our imagination. So it's just kind of sitting there supervising four million people, depriving them of their liberty and, and breaking their chops. What is the difference between probation and parole? Just lay that out for us. And what are the differences in the problems and the solutions of each? Sure. So both of them were started in the 1800s. Both of them were a reaction to worsening prisons, which were relatively new then, right? We, the penitentiaries and probation and parole and juvenile justice were all kind of invented during the 1800s. And when they invented penitentiaries, they saw the abuses. This guy, John Augustus, a bootmaker in Boston, started bailing people out so they wouldn't go to the Boston House of Correction as an alternative to going into the House of Correction. So probation was up front. I'm going to evaluate you, go to the judge, say, I want to take this guy out of the system and supervise him in the community and help him turn his life around. Parole was invented in the U.S. context by a guy named Zebulon Brockway. Zebulon. <laughs> right? Don't these guys have great names? John Augustus? No, no Vinny Chiraldi's a Mike. I think man, right? Zebulon Brockway is the 19th century equivalent of Vinny Chiraldi. <laughs> like the, if you get it through the Brockway translator, that's what it's about. Yeah. <laughs> and so anyway, he, he says, you know, people are just sitting and they, they do their time and just get out, whether they've participated in programs, whether they behave well or they behave poorly. So there's no incentive. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to create what they call indeterminate sentences. So you don't just get a year or three years. You get one to three. And you get out at one if you behave well. You get out at three if you don't behave well. And then I'll put a bunch of programs in here so people can be released. And when they get released, I'll supervise them on parole. And so that's that's parole was sort of at the back end to shorten lengths of stay. Having read the book, I know that there are many planks of reform, but if you were to sell this to a curious, but as you've demonstrated, largely ignorant public, what are the two or three big bullet points or the elevator pitch for the mass supervision problem? So I, I put, I equivocate in this, which is not usual for me. 
and I really kind of take two paths. One is make it smaller, make it less punitive, stop locking people up for ticky-tack fouls like missing appointments, staying out past curfew, things like that. Uh, and then with the millions and millions and millions of dollars, it's $2.8 billion we spend every year locking people up for non-criminal technical violations. Take that money, put it into communities so we can buy housing, so we can buy drug treatment, so we can help people find jobs, so we can help people finish their educations. So my equivocation is, should anything be left or should we just take the whole thing and push that into the community? And I say, I think it's worth trying for some populations. If you commit a misdemeanor, let's say, maybe we should just stop putting people on probation and fund communities to help them turn their lives around. So I think that's a reasonable disagreement. Some people are going to say, oh, you're an abolitionist, you're crazy, you're, you know. But I think, I think things need to be tried and measured because this dog won't hunt. It's been around for a long time and it hasn't proved its worth. So if you don't violate people for these ticky-tack fouls, as you've called them, do you just then not have a rule against, say, drug use uh, while someone's on probation or associating with felons? Or do you have a regime where they get five chances instead of one or two if they violate? So uh, my, my predecessor at New York City probation was a guy named Marty Horn. And Marty uh, proposed abolishing parole. He said, basically, we shouldn't care about all these silly rules that don't attach themselves to any evidence that a person is or is not doing good. If there is no correlation between drug use and alcohol use and uh, uh, someone on probation reviolating, you're saying? Well, reviolating, yes. Oh, yeah, sorry. Committing a new crime. Reoffending, yeah. Right. Committing a new crime, of course there is. But. It doesn't matter until you commit the crime. So punish the crime. Don't punish that other behavior because while, yes, people who use drugs are more likely to commit crimes, there's a whole bunch of people who use drugs who never commit crimes. There's a whole bunch of people who drink alcohol who never commit crimes. So what Marty said is basically- And by the way, to interrupt, a year ago, some of those crimes they would commit were, were using drugs, which are now in most places decriminalized. Just a That's note. right. Yes. That's exactly right. So now, I mean, what Marty's saying is, with the millions and millions, hundreds of millions, literally, New York would save, just give these guys a voucher. Mike, you come out, you got a couple of thousand dollars. Spend it on drug treatment. I'm not going to give you the thousand dollars. I'm going to give you a voucher. Spend it on jobs. Spend it on housing. That'll buy more safety than hiring some bureaucrat to make you go back to prison because you skipped an appointment or stayed out past curfew. Mm-hmm. I want to um, ask, and I've heard you speak on the overall... Uh, question of decarceration. I've heard you on decarceration podcasts, even I think just mentioned that word or that idea in our conversation. In the book, you said that you were into the idea of uh, combating our incarceration problem and statistics since the 1980s. Is that right? Correct. So in the 1980s, our rate of incarceration from, you know, somewhere to take a point in the mid 1980s to the early 90s, it doubled from about 133 to about 300, more than doubled to 350 some odd uh, individuals. Now it's somewhere up near 600. But as I look at the statistics, as I look at the crime statistics and the incarceration statistics, you know, I don't come to the conclusion that 
if there is crime, our goal should be a rate of zero. It should be commensurate with crime and with the effort to reduce crime. And just looking at the statistics, I see a lot of evidence that there was a correlation between incarcerating more people who committed more crime and the effort to bring down crime, especially in the late 1990s. Um, Do you see that correlation or do you think there's another way to look at it, which is you acknowledge that putting more people in jail does have the effect, if done right, of bringing down crime. You just don't think the costs are worth it. Somewhere in between. Um, Most of the research that gets put out about the connection between incarceration and crime shows disappointing results, Mm -hmm. but not no results. And it depends on which piece of research you're looking at. Um, So yeah, there is some depressing effect by locking lots and lots of people up. It has enormous collateral consequences. It probably makes the individuals who get incarcerated worse. And that is balanced by the incapacitative effects of locking so many people up. That said, there's a different, there's a better way to do this. While the whole country continued to increase mass incarceration from around the early 70s all the way to 2008, that's what the country did. New York started, New York City started to substantially reduce incarceration in the early 90s under the, in the waning years of uh, Mayor um, Dinkins. Dinkins, through Mayor Giuliani, through Mayor Bloomberg, through Mayor de Blasio, until the pandemic. So like 1992 up to to 2019, New York City's jail population dropped from 22,000 to 5,400, and the number of people who were sent into prison dropped similarly, and crime plummeted in New York City during that time. Just, Just the homicide numbers alone went from around 2,200 to under 300 right before the pandemic. Stunning declines. And so the answer for me is, is does, does incarceration have some depressing effect? The answer is, could it be done a different way where you don't hobble a whole generation of young black men uh, in order to get the crime reduction you want. And I think New York City says the answer is yes. Yeah. And New York State statistics uh, correlate with that. Of course, the city statistics. If you take the prison and jail uh, populations, the state, especially under Cuomo, started um, having many fewer prisoners in their facilities as well. But the way I look at that, and I've studied these statistics pretty carefully, is that I, I do remember at the time there was a gr- even a greater call for decarceration. And had it gone too hard and too fast, you might not have had that decrease in crime. What I think is, and you tell me, but there's really strong evidence that past a certain age, 30, 35, the capacity, willingness, brain chemistry involved in, or just the networks of uh, people you associate with, um, change and you're so much more likely, right? You're so much more likely not to commit a crime if you're in your 40s. So in the beginning of that experiment, when New York City and New York State were um, decarcerating and letting more people out of jail, it was, I don't want to use an insulting phrase, 
low-hanging fruit, easy cases. There was the ability to allow out all these people in their 40s that statistics would show are not going to offend again. And so that made the murder rates seem much lower. They were much lower, but also it made the incarceration rates, uh, it gave it the ability to be low without having decarceration have the effect of increasing the murder rates. I mean, is that what happened with the ages of the population? What a great conversation this is. Let me <laughs> just start by saying that. Like, this is the most elaborate and detailed interview I think I've ever experienced. So I think, yes, I think what you're saying is true, but we have to look at what happened in other places to see, all right, well, you know, I mean, like Texas and New York aren't the same place, but like the brains of kids in Texas yeah. were, were also aging and they were also had a ton of low hanging fruit, probably more than we had because they were more willing to use incarceration for lower level stuff. And when you look at it that way, I think what you see in New York is not that you can just stop incarcerating people and throw them all out into the community and hope things work out. New York did a bunch of stuff. I mean, you look at the Fortune Society, the Center for Court Innovation, the Vera Institute of Justice, the Osborne Association, on and on. New York was investing in things that would help people who would otherwise be either in jail or on probation. Because while incarceration was dropping in New York, probation was dropping from 82,000 people. Now it's under 10,000 people on probation. And again, all that time, Crime was declining uh, up until the pandemic. So, you know, I think New York is a good example of a place that said, let's use this apparatus more parsimoniously, not throw everybody into it like some states like Texas, I mentioned, but others do. And let's invest in some alternatives that are going to help people not get rearrested. Mm -hmm. And to go back to one of the uh, assertions I made, the correlation between crime and likelihood of crime and age is really strong, isn't it? Yes, Yeah. absolutely. There's a strong age crime curve. Again, I don't think that means, you know, I worry that that, that means, okay, let's lock all the 20-year-olds up. There are lots of things you can do with a 20-year-old to help them not reoffend. You look at the uh, uh, common justice uh, only in Brooklyn, only focuses on people who have committed violent offenses or between the ages of 16 and 25 who are facing a year or more in either jail or prison and works with their victims and them to divert them from incarceration and really wrap services around them so they don't reoffend. Their, their outcomes are fantastic. So, you know, to, to go back to your example, Mike, as there was low, a lot of low-hanging fruit in the 90s. Mm -hmm. There's not much low-hanging fruit anymore. Yeah. So to the degree you're thinking we should reduce the jail population further, let's say by accelerating cases like we talked about earlier, what you want to do is you want to put more and more robust services, supports, and opportunities in place so when people come out, they're not homeless, right? When people come out, they got supports, they can get a job, they got mental health services. You, at a state prison in New York, Tons of people get paroled to homeless shelters. A homeless shelter is the place you go to fail when you come out of prison. You just got to figure out a way to capture those savings and put them into community programs because you cannot just send people back home with no supports. Now, you have said that 
and I think this is true, but I want to ask about your implica- the implications of it. You have said, if we can get you to pass the age of 25, having not committed a felony, the chances of you committing one uh, from that point forward are very, very low. So that's something that we societally should be invested in. But you've also uh, endorsed uh, sentencing procedures, which would make it less likely for person who has committed a felony to receive serious prison or jail time. And you've also endorsed, I think, decriminalization of a lot of of actions that are considered felonies. Is your way to get the 25-year-old past the age of felony just to define felony down? That's one of the ways, yeah. I mean, California did that with six different felonies and they had a massive reduction in the number of people in prison, a massive reduction in the number of people on probation and parole, and crime went down, and they put hundreds of millions of dollars into mental health services, victim services, and other community programs to help people turn their lives around. We're in a society that has invested very, very heavily in prisons. Most other societies have had less crime and less incarceration. New York happens to be one of those societies in the United States. In fact, we would be a mediocre European country if we were a standalone country. That's true. That's true. In terms of incarceration. That hypothetical mediocre country wouldn't have a Second Amendment gun culture and the wide availability of guns uh, within its borders. That's right. And that Second Amendment exists in New York City just like it exists in South Carolina. And you're positing, oh, it's only because of our mandatory sentencing gun law that we have less crime. I I reject that notion. But while saying that that didn't have nothing to do with it either. I don't think we know exactly how much it has to do with it, but I don't think it did at all. I don't think it did none of it. Vincent Chiraldi is currently secretary of the Maryland Department of Juvenile Services. He served in high positions for New York City as uh, head of the Department of Probation and commissioner of the Department of Correction. He's been a researcher at Harvard's Kennedy School, co-founder of the Columbia University Justice Lab. His new book is Mass Supervision, Probation, Parole, and the Illusion of Freedom and Safety. Great to talk to you. Great to talk to you, Mike. Thanks for having me on. And now the spiel. Most people hate the SATs. How could they not? It's a test that tells 90% of people they're not even in the top 10%. But like other loathed institutions, the IRS, speed cameras, the anger isn't over the fact that the SAT gets it wrong. Research shows it gets it mostly right. Okay, the SAT and ACT, not as precise as calibrating a car's speed via radar and LIDAR, light detection and ranging. It's just that these tests are more accurate than the other tools at our disposal. In terms of predicting a student's academic success, their first year of college, they're good. And grades plus the SAT or ACTs, better than just looking at grades alone. When the subject is the SATs themselves, this is often denied or explained away or treated as not the primary consideration. In many circles, including at elite universities like Stanford, the University of Chicago, and the Ivies, schools defined as elite in part for their long history of valuing high SAT scores, the tests have fallen into disfavor. But there's a tell. When a different point about fairness or equity is waiting to be made, the SATs are the first thing that's reached for as valid proof of the underlying point. This is because the SATs have validity 
and honest academics know it. Recently, the state of Florida announced it was accepting a different standardized test, the CLT, for admission into their colleges. It's the classic learning test. I say standardized. I mean, it's a form. There are bubbles. It's not so standard. It's favored by homeschoolers, and Governor Ron DeSantis's dominated board voted to allow it unanimously. Well, not unanimously. The Actual member of the college faculty on the board, Amanda Phelan, a business professor at the University of Florida, said, we do not have empirical evidence that this assessment is of the same quality as the ACT and SAT. Then there was the recent study by Stanford's Raj Shetty and others that demonstrated that colleges were much, much, elite colleges, I should say, were much, much more likely to admit rich students than poor students of the same quality. They found that among students with the same test scores, applicants with families in the top 1% of earners were 34% more likely to be accepted. Those from the top 0.1% were twice as likely to be accepted. Test scores, that reference, that test was the SAT. The study was of scorers above 1,500 on the SAT and seeing what colleges they got into. The SATs were valid enough to make a point that is even more progressive than simply SAT bad. This point was elite colleges like the rich. Uh Uh-huh. If that point is to be made with validity, they reach for the SAT test because it itself is valid. When MSNBC's Morning Joe was covering the results of that study, host Joe Scarborough, Morning Joe himself, launched into a point about how when he was a kid, he took the test without any prep. Here's a number two, fell out of bubble. But these days, rich kids have test prep advantages. Yeah, that's true. But it's beside the point to the study at hand, which was comparing students with like scores, like scores on this valid test. But Steve Ratner, in explaining the role of the SAT to Morning Joe, displayed a chart and he made this point. One of the problems of getting more kids into these elite schools is that they simply don't even take the test. If you look down here, all the way up to the 70th percentile, the top 70% of incomes, fewer than half of kids coming out of high school actually take the SATs. And I ran into this very phenomenon on a recent college visit, not for me. I went to college for my SAT curious son. The admissions officer at Georgetown, which does require the SAT, by the way, explained that he wished more students would take the test, especially those from lower socioeconomic backgrounds who might be attending schools that are not traditional pipelines into the Ivies or the near Ivies. It's hard for an admission officer to make the case that a student with otherwise high grades from a poor school could thrive at Georgetown. But if that student scored, and I interrupted him and said, ah, 1,400, he said, not even 1,400, even 1,200, it would be a strong indication that Georgetown should be able to take a chance on the student because Georgetown wants to reach that kind of student, the graduate of the kind of school where most graduates don't go to college at all, let alone Georgetown. How do they do it? Via this valid, consistent gauge that's available to all students. What the recent de-emphasis of the SAT will do is it will convince good students who bomb the SAT that it doesn't matter. That is true. But students convince themselves that they'll never get into a college if they have a lower than average score anyway. Students catastrophize. And guess what? Almost exactly half the students at any given college have a lower than average score on the SATs for that college. By the way, you needed a 680 or above to figure that one out. But what's really happening? in the name of lightening the emotional burden of students freaked out over college, isn't that they're no longer taking the SAT. 
It's that they're still taking the SAT on the hopes that they do well, very well. In fact, unless you do very, very well, it doesn't even make sense to submit your SAT scores. Given the competition to get into college, these kids will try anything that increases their chances 5%, 10%. And now that the SAT has been de-emphasized, even 05 or 1%. They still take it. They still study for it just as hard. They still stress over it. It's just much, much, much less likely to help them. Students with good scores are told, yeah, good score, maybe very good score, but it doesn't matter. That score better be perfect or it won't move the needle. So what was a competition for excellence is a competition now for perfection or near perfection. Just perfect. I know. It would all be fine if the tests were invalid, then I'd say, yeah, you got to throw them out. But they are valid, and we're largely being misled about their validity. And we see that they're valid when anyone offers a homeschooling alternative. No, not as good as the SAT. Or when anyone wants to show that poor students with excellent SAT scores are at a disadvantage. That's not fair. Why is it not fair? I thought you said they had decent SAT scores. I thought we're tossing those out. No, not to make this point. I've always found that the discussion around college applications uh, to be a little unreasonable. It goes like this. There are a certain number of spots in elite schools. By the way, there needn't be, right? Especially with distance learning. But there are. There still are. And there are a certain number of students vying for those spots. The number of students has gone up with international students, with increasing wealth, with greater outreach, with a number of people applying. By the way, those are all, maybe not the Chinese part, but they're all good societally that more people are being encouraged to go to good schools and that the good schools are getting the word out that we're worth the money and we're worth applying. So that's all good. Why should we stress about it? And good students will go somewhere to some college that's good, maybe in some national ranking less good than they hoped. But it won't generally matter for their life outcome or for happiness, really for much else other than debt. By the way, Harvard, Yale, Stanford, Princeton, those are exceptions to everything I'm saying. Those schools can really make you just having that diploma, not a guarantee, but a huge leg up. But other than, you know, four, five, seven schools, I don't want to insult Duke, but if you had your heart set on Cornell, but only got into Bucknell, unless it's a specific program, hello, hotel management, it won't matter. Cornell, 98,000 median salary, 10 years after graduation, Bucknell, 87,000. It's a difference, but price into it the fact that Cornell graduates are much more likely to live in the expensive city of New York. Here's a better example. Swarthmore College, a liberal arts school right outside of Philadelphia, with an admission rate of 8%, under 8%, average earnings, $80,000. Haverford, a liberal arts school right outside of Philadelphia, with an admission rate of 17.8%, average earnings, $78,000. Franklin and Marshall, a liberal arts school between Harrisburg and Philadelphia, they've got a whopping 37% admission rate, median income, $80,000. It all sorts out. It's all fine. Everyone goes to a college and lives a nice life if they are in the cohort of having the time to study without the stress of working or affording tuition. By the way, this is the biggest point. Two-thirds of colleges accept two-thirds or more of the students who apply. The large majority, I would say, I don't know, maybe two-thirds of our concern should be about the success of these people, i.e. most Americans who go to college. 
And for the still SAT anxious crowd, if colleges keep making these bad mistakes and letting people in that they shouldn't while rejecting you that they should, they will eventually lose status and standing. It happens. Yale, Princeton, Harvard accepted. Those guys could pretty much never screw up. They're in such a good position right now. The SAT is another proxy for our anxieties over youth and fairness. It is a fair test, though not perfectly fair. What is? And we find this to be true when it's convenient to acknowledge that the SAT has validity. The SAT is fair, valid, useful, and also greatly pilloried. Yes, in this case, the answer is E, all of the above. And that's it for The Gist. It was produced by Corey Wara, ACT score 33. Joel Patterson, Senior producer, SAT score, 1390. Michelle Pesca, CLO of Peachfish Productions, also warns me that disclosing the SAT scores of the staff is probably an actionable offense. It was fiction. It was all a work of fiction. Michelle's very smart, SAT score, 1430. The gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash the gist. Oomperoo, Peru, Peru, and thanks for listening. <laughs>